Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church Lagos. We hope this sermon answers the doubts or questions that you have about the gospel, its relevance to your life, and the ever-evolving culture around us. Our vision is to see the city of Lagos and beyond renewed by the gospel, and to make that happen, we need your support. You can do this by rating this podcast, following us, and giving through the Give tab on our website, citychurchlagos.com. Thank you for your generosity. We pray this sermon impacts you positively with the gospel. Good morning, church. At the end of the reading, please, I would say, this is the word of the Lord. Kindly respond by saying, thanks be to God. Ezra chapter 8, verse 15. I assembled them at the canal that flowed towards Ahava, and we camped there three days. When I checked among the people and the priests, I saw no Levites there. So I summoned Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jarib, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, who were leaders, and Joarib and Elnathan, who were men of learning. And I ordered them to go to Edo, the leader in Cassiphia. I told them what to say to Edo and his fellow Levites, the temple servants in Cassiphia, <clears throat> so that they may bring attendance to us from the house of our God. Because the gracious hand of our God was on us, they brought us Sherebiah, a capable man from the descendants of Melai, son of Levi, the son of Israel, and Sherebiah's sons and brothers, 18 in all, and Hashabiah, together with Josiah, from the descendants of Merai, and his brothers and nephews, 20 in all. They also brought 220 of the temple servants, a body that David and the officials had established to assist the Levites. All were registered by name. There, by the Ahava Canal, I proclaimed a fast so that we may humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from the enemies on the road because we had told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him. But his great anger is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this. And he answered our prayer. Then I set apart 12 of the leading priests, namely Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and 10 of our brothers. And I weighed out to them the offering of silver and gold and the articles that the king, his advisors, his officials, and all Israel present there had donated for the house of our God. I weighed out to them 650 talents of silver, silver articles weighing 100 talents, 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold value at 1,000 darics, and two fine articles of polished bronze as precious as gold. I said to them, you as well as these articles are consecrated 
to the Lord. The silver and the gold I freely offering to the Lord, the God of our ancestors. Guide them carefully until you weigh them out in the chambers of the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, before the leading priests and the Levites and the family heads of Israel. Then the priests and the Levites received the silver and gold and sacred articles that had been weighed out to be taken to the house of our God in Jerusalem. On the 12th day of the first month, we set out from Ahava Canal to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he protected us from enemies and bandits along the way. So we arrived in Jerusalem, where we rested three days. This is the word of our Lord. Good morning, everyone. Can you hear me? Happy Independence Day, everybody. Good to see that um, a number of us are wearing green. And <laughs> I think um, it's very appropriate today that more, more than ever to, to pray for our country. We should be praying for Nigeria, but today more than ever, we should pray for our country. And so let's just close our eyes as we pray. It's a very, it's a prayer that we all know. O oh God of creation, direct our noble cause. Guide our leaders right. Help our youth the truth to know. <laughs> I, I cannot remember. <laughs> in love, at, is that love and in love, in, No, I cannot remember. <laughs> in love and honesty to grow and living just and true. Great lofty heights attain to build a nation where peace is how we disgrace ourselves. I need to write it down for second service. So, good morning, everybody. We are continuing our series on the book of Ezra. It's titled The Gracious Turnaround. And today we are going to be in Ezra chapter 8. And two weeks ago, Emmanuel showed us in Ezra chapter 7 from verse 1 to 10, how the Persian king Artaxerxes commissioned Ezra to return to Jerusalem with all the Jews who were willing and walk towards the restoration of the worship of God in Judah. And we're really going to be continuing from there because the way Ezra chapter 7 and 8 are structured is that chapter 7 verse 1 to 10 is a summary of what happens in the rest of chapter 7 and chapter 8. So last week, we saw from chapter 7, verse 11 to the end, we saw Ezra being commissioned by the king, and we considered what it means to be a person of the word like Ezra. And in today's passage, chapter 8, we'll see Ezra's preparation and eventual return to Jerusalem. And this is such a great chapter. When I think about Ezra chapter 8, this is what crosses my mind. Can we have the picture up? God. I see what you're doing for others. I would like you to do it for me as well. We saw last week that the king gave Ezra lots of money. He has favor with men, we'll see in verse 15 to 20. In verse 31 to 32, he goes on a very dangerous journey. It means he has favor with God as well. Yes, Ezra will have challenges as we see, but it's almost as if everything Ezra touches turns to gold. 
In the words of that song, Ezra has oil on his head, increase in his hand, and speed on his feet. But beyond that, I think this passage is actually really important because it doesn't just tell us what Ezra does. It tells us how he thinks about what he does. What do I mean? In each of the situations that we see Ezra, he constantly thinks about them the same way, and that is this, that the gracious hand of God was upon me. And the fact that he says this over and over and over again, over the course of chapter 7 and chapter 8, he says it six times, it tells us that this is pivotal to the narrative of his life. And so while last week we looked at the life of Ezra to see what it looks like to live under the word, today we are going to look at his life again to see what it means to live under the gracious hand of God. And we're going to look at it under three headings. Under whose hand? Under God's hand? And beyond God's hand? And of course the sermon is titled, Under the Gracious Hand hand of God. So before we go on, let's just go to God once more in prayer. Open our eyes, O Lord, that we may behold wondrous things out of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. My first point, under whose hand? Now, Ezra had been mandated by the king to return to Jerusalem, and we see the first issue that, we, that Ezra faces in Ezra chapter, um, in verse 15 to 20. Like we saw last week, the king had issued a decree. As many as want to go back can go. Not only that, he was funding this expedition directly from the royal treasury. Yet, what was the response? Verse 15 said, I assembled them at the canal that flows towards Ahava, and, when, and we camped there three days. When I checked among the people and the priests, I found no Levites there. And this is very strange. It reminds me of something that happened in 2014 when the Chibok girls were kidnapped. The then first lady had called for a meeting and she asked the principal of that secondary school a very important question. Now only you, Wakakum. And everybody was laughing about it. She turned into me. But here's what she was trying to get at. She was saying, this meeting is of such importance that I find it very difficult to believe that the parents or other teachers, people that were primarily concerned, did not show up. And that's kind of what is happening here, because you would think that the Levites would be the most excited tribe to come, because Ezra's mission was explicitly connected to the duty of the Levites. They were not only responsible for serving in the temple, they were responsible for teaching God's law to the people. The king had even given them some incentives, like we saw last week in verse 24 of chapter 7. He said, no tax if you go. Yet, none of them were come. It's a strange thing. But all hope is not lost, because Ezra knew that at a place called Kasifia, there were Levites living there under the leadership of the, a guy called Ido. So what does he do? Verse 16, so I summon Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jarib, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, who were leaders, and Jarib and Elnathan, who were men of learning, and I ordered them to go to Edo, the leader in Kasifia. I told them what to say to Edo and his fellow Levites, the temple servants in Kasifia, so that they might bring attendance to us for the house of God. And we see immediately that Ezra is a really good leader. First of all, he pays attention to detail. 
That's why he knows that the Levites are not there in the first place, because he would have expected that they would have shown up. But also, he's really good at delegating. See the people that he's, see how the Bible describes the people that he sends? He said they are leaders, people that are respected, people that the Levites will listen to. And what was the result of what Ezra did? Verse 18, they brought us Sherebiah, a capable man from the descendants of Mali, son of Levi, the son of Israel, and Sherebiah's sons and brothers, 18 in all. And Hashabiah, together with Jeshiah from the descendants of Merari, and his brothers and nephews, 20 in all. In fact, verse 20 goes on to say that 220 of the temple servants come as well. But here's what I think is more important. Even though we can draw a straight line from Ezra's strategy and leadership skills to the results that he gets, what does Ezra think is responsible for his success? Verse 18 tells us that it was because the gracious hand of our God was on us. And Ezra uses this phrase in chapter, in, in chapter 7, verse 6, when he's talking about the king's decree. He says, the king has granted them everything he asked for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And we can understand that. Of course, everybody will agree that, will agree that that required the hand of God for the king to do all that. But this one is a bit different. It's an administrative problem that Ezra solves. There's nothing particularly spectacular or even spiritual about this one. But yet he said it also happened because God's hand was on us. And if you ask most of us, we'll, be, we'll say, of course, we believe that God's hand is on us. But the question then is, what do we really mean when we say this? Here's one of the ways we think about God's hand. That the extent of God's hand in our life is that he has set principles in place and left it up to me. In other words, God is in heaven doing his own. We are on earth doing our own. And it is far easier to adopt this view than we think. It's because the Bible is full of wisdom. It's full of principles that if followed will generally result in success regardless of whether you're a Christian or not. You can learn about finances from God's word. You can learn about leadership from God's word. We just finished a series on parenting. And there's a real danger that we can then begin to relate to God in solely pragmatic terms, in a way that is devoid of relationship. Maybe we'll do something that is slightly better. What do I mean? We can stop at Ezra 7. We say, I accept that God takes care of the big things. Where I need the king's decree. Where I need policies to change. God does that. But when it comes to chapter 8, talking to the Levites, our daily life, the nitty-gritty, God is far, far away, and you run your life as you see fit. There's a term for this. It's called functional atheism. Professing God with our mouths, but living our day-to-day -day life as if he doesn't exist. According to an author, um, Dr. Bobby Conway, here are some signs that you might be a functional atheist. I'm just going to say five of them. You may be a functional atheist if you only turn to God when life gets difficult. You may be a functional atheist if you only consult God for, you, you, do not, you don't consult God for various levels of decision making. If your prayer life is non-existent or it is heartless and rote. If you seldom think about God nor desire to know him better, you might be a functional atheist. 
If you make your own rules for life and minimize what God has to say, you might be a functional atheist. Have I just described you? Is this how you have been living your life? God is in heaven doing his own. We are on earth doing our own. But Ezra is not like this. He sees God at work in everything going on in his life. If you look at this passage, it's deliberately crafted for us to think about the Exodus. And if you look at it, there are many similarities between Moses' Exodus and what is happening in Ezra chapter 8. In both, in both situations, can we have the table up? There, there was a pagan king. Both of them, Israel was in a foreign land. In both of them, they were led by a descendant of Levi, Moses on the one hand and Ezra in this time. In, this, in both of them, there were 12 tribes and 12 families that left the foreign land. And when they left, the Israelites were gifted with silver and gold as they left that foreign land. But there's something else that the Bible also says about Moses' exodus. There's a term that the Bible often uses when it's describing Moses' exodus. And it is this, that God's hand was on them. The Bible says it all the time. But see one in Jeremiah. He says, you brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and with an outstretched arm and great terror. And Ezra takes this theme and applies it to his life, like we have seen. But there are no signs and wonders in chapter 8. There is no parting of the Red Sea. There are no plagues. Yet, Ezra frames this narrative this way because to him, God's hand is as much as work in his situation as he was in the Exodus. Ezra sees the miraculous in the mundane. And if you think about it, he was right because you see, Ezra could have strategized all he liked. But think about it. What could he have possibly said to the Levites that would have convinced them when they were moved by the king's decree? The king won't try to incentivize them. They did not show up. What could he have told them that have made these men pack up their things in less than two weeks and launch out into the unknown? And it's the same thing with us as well. If we think hard about our lives, if we think about our lives, even the most ordinary things, the things we most, the things we most deserve, if we trace the causes further and further back, you eventually come across something that you cannot account for. Yes, you're good at what you do, but what are the circumstances that led to you having that specific skill set that you have? Ezra tells us the answer. It was because the good hand of God was upon you. Because it wasn't God's hands upon you. <laughs> it wasn't God actively at work in your life. The only other alternative you have to explain it is luck. Because there are so many variables in our lives that we cannot account for. Not just in, in our past, but in our future as well. Thank God you have a good marriage, but you do not know for sure that your spouse will not stop loving you tomorrow. You have a great job, a great business, but nobody knows what's going to happen tomorrow. And if you live your life as if it is all on you, then what you're really trusting is not even yourself, but the hope of unlimited good luck. Who you really worship is not the God of the Bible, but fortune. Whose hand are you under? But there's yet another way to look at the hand of God. In this case, you do not see the hand of God as far away, but as very involved in your life. In fact, you attribute so many things to God. The problem is that you view the hand of God like a magic wand. 
Your view of God's hand is God's power divorced from who he is. This view that God only exists to solve your problems, in a sense, amputates God's hands and gives you as a talisman so he can wave around anyhow you like. God in my life, but on my own terms. In that one, it's not God's hand upon your life, but it's your hand on God's life. Because <laughs> you feel like you can direct him anyhow you like. But Ezra is different. He doesn't see, view God's hand as far away from his life or as a hand that exists solely for his use. He sees God's hand as involved, constantly working everything according to his own divine counsel and plan. How do we know? Because Ezra sees God in every corner. Here's another example. The king gave the Jews all these treasures. And in verse 24, Ezra hands them over to the priests and to the Levites to carry to Jerusalem. What does he tell them as he hands over the articles? Does he say, I'm trusting in you, don't let me down. Does he say, think about your reputation so people will not think you're dishonest? And don't get me wrong, those are good motivations, but see what Ezra says, verse 28. I said to them, you as well as these articles are consecrated to the Lord. The silver and gold are a free offering to the Lord, the God of your ancestors. Ezra's motivation to them is, hey guys, these are God's things. And this is what it means to live under the hand of God, to live as though God were an ever-present reality, working out his purposes in our lives. And that's what we are called to do as well, to link every aspect of our lives to who God is and what he's doing. One of the best books I've read is a book called Liturgy of the Ordinary by a lady called Tish Warren Harrison. She does exactly this. She links the ordinary things of life to who God is and his plan to make us more like Jesus. She links waking up to baptism. Eating leftovers today is when the service is forgettable and the sermon is somewhat boring. She links sitting in traffic, Legosians, to waiting for Christ's return. When she loses her keys, she's reminded that God searches more earnestly for me than I do for my keys. He's zealous to find his people and make them whole. I love this one. She links drinking coffee to enjoying God's good gifts. After pointing out that coffee was invented by Christian monks, she says, coffee is born of extravagance. An extravagant God who formed an extravagant people, who formed a craft out of the pleasures of roasted beans and frothed milk. And of course she says that, of course she says that tea is as a result of the fall. No, she doesn't say that. She says that when she's drinking hot tea, she is smelling, seeing, feeling, and tasting that God is good. Her point is this. The small daily moments of our lives are sacramental. Not that they are sacraments in themselves, but that God meets us in and through the earthly material world in which we dwell. The call to realize that God's hand on your life is the same call to Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 3. Remove your shoes, for you are standing on holy ground. Why was he holy? Because God was present there. What will our lives look like? Our work, our relationships, our marriage, our singleness, our friendship, our parenting look like if we realize that they were holy ground. If we're aware that God was present there. I'll tell you what it will look like. We'll be people that were full of gratitude, full of joy, full of hope. In one word, will be worshippers. But it requires us to pay attention. Like Moses in Exodus chapter 3 verse 3, he said, I will turn aside and see this great sight while the bush is not burned. When you wake up, before you press your phone, pause 
and turn aside. Hear what God has to say. Like we saw last week, take his word in your heart and think about it as you go on your day. And what happens is that as you begin to meditate on God's word, you begin to notice what God is doing all around you. See how Psalm 19 verse 8 puts it. It says the commandment of God is pure. What does it do? It enlightens the eyes. Do you see? Living under the hand of God and living under the word of God are intricately linked. But it requires us to turn aside. And it, of course, it's not easy. But here's something we can do. First of all, after you read God's word, write down what you learn. If you don't write it, you will not remember. Whatever app you want to use, you want to write it physically, write it down. Then, set alarms throughout the day so you can pause and reflect on what you read. What happens is similar, then is similar to what happens when you want to buy a particular car. What happens is that you start seeing the car everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> People did not run and go and buy that car yesterday. The thing is that you're now becoming attuned to that car. And that's what happens as we keep meditating on the word of God. At the end of the day, turn aside again. Pause and reflect. Ask yourself, where have I seen God at work? Where have I ignored God? Ask him to help you become more aware and more aware of his presence. And yes, turning aside is going to take time. And this means that you have less time for Instagram and TikTok and Netflix. But you also see that something is beginning to change in you. Now you're becoming less anxious. You're becoming more thankful. You're becoming more and more like Jesus. But that's not all. There are two things we see in the text that happen when we realize that we live under the hand of God. We become people of faith and we become people of prayer. My second point, under God's hand. Verse 22 says, I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road because we are told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. And so we fasted and petitioned our God about this, and he answered our prayer. Now, the Bible doesn't really comment on whether this is a wise decision or not. And I think it's on purpose. I think what you are supposed to focus on is the faith of Ezra and the logic of it. What we are supposed to focus on is the faith of Ezra and how he comes about this faith. And by faith, I don't mean refusing to take your drugs or refusing to go for surgery. I don't mean refusing to do insurance. And people that work in insurance will tell you that their biggest competitor in Nigeria is not other insurance companies. Their biggest competitor is the blood of Jesus. <laughs> That's not what we are talking about here. What I'm saying is, what I'm saying is that if you truly believe that God's hand is on your life, working out everything for your good, then you will be free to launch out in faith and service to God and to others. That you will say like Psalm 118, that the Lord is on my side. I will not be afraid. In June, Emmanuel preached a sermon about this. It was a series that was made for more, and the title of that sermon was Made to Risk. And here's what he told us, that apathy is your friend. Do you remember? But it should be your enemy. And he said, taking risk is good, and you can be sure that it will succeed. And apathy is our default state. We like to live safe lives that we can just coast, and many times we package it as wisdom. But we must ask ourselves, is it possible that the real story is that I have calculated what I can do and it's not enough, so I'm not even going to try? 
And when we think about it, sometimes our refusal to take risks and launch out in faith is also a form of functional atheism. It stems from the view that it's all up to us. In all our calculations, you know who is often absent? God. At the end of the day, the shameful truth is that many times we often do not take risks because there's a lack of trust in God. But see how Ezra refers to God's activity on his life. He calls it the gracious hand of God. It's this idea that God is not only powerful, but that he is also good. That he is favorably disposed to us. That God is for you. And it's by trusting in his gracious care that we are free to face the unknown. And author Sky Jetani tells the story of the theologian Henry Nguyen, who, and, and he went to, Henry Nguyen went to a circus. And at the circus, he began to watch trapeze artists perform. So can we just play the video, a video of trapeze artists, so we'll have that. <laughs> watching this, as he was watching this, he began to think about what it means to trust God. And here's what he said. If we are to take risks, to be free in the air, we have to know that there is a catcher. We have to know that when we come down from it all, we are going to be caught, that we are going to be safe. And he says, trust the catcher. And the specific of our, the of our lives may be different. You know the specific ways that God has been prompting you to take a leap of faith. Maybe God is calling you to risk failure and start a business so you can be a channel of blessing. Maybe God is calling you to risk see finish and mentor young people so that they can make better decisions. Maybe God is... God is convicting somebody there. <laughs> God is, maybe God is calling you to risk judgment and confide in someone about the sin that is dragging you down so you can get the help you need. Maybe God is calling you to risk loneliness and leave that relationship that you know is not godly, even though you don't know whether you'll find somebody else. Maybe God is calling you to put your faith in Christ and become a Christian, even though you don't know what the future holds for you. Here's God's word to you. Trust in the gracious hand of God. Trust the catcher. And I probably need to hear this more than everybody here because I want to have all the answers. I'm like a Gideon Pro Max. Remember Gideon in Judges chapter 6? He kept asking God for reassurance after reassurance after reassurance. I think spirit lead me when my trust is without borders. But I'm not sure I really mean it. I don't want God to carry me to where I don't know. <laughs> and if you're like me, to do us well to remember what Emmanuel told us. That our faith has never been about the certainty of our outcomes. It has always been about the character of God. Trust the catcher. I verse 22 says, God's gracious hand is on everyone who looks to him. But if we look at that text, we see that verse 22 doesn't end there. It goes on to say that God's great anger 
is against all who forsake him. And who among us have not forsaken him? We have not loved God as we ought. We have not obeyed him. Like Isaiah says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. The question is this, on what basis can we trust that God will not give us what we actually deserve? How do we know that we will not get his great anger? And the answer is this, that there was someone who should have received God's gracious hand, but instead he received God's hand of justice. In fact, that's not quite accurate. He did not need to receive a gracious hand because he deserved God's favor. He was perfectly obedient. He never forsook God. He was everything that we are not. But yet he said, I will take what they deserve so that they can have what I deserve. I will be cursed for their sake so that they can be blessed for my sake. On the cross, Jesus bore God's hand of judgment so that we can receive God's gracious hand. And because of what he did, all who believe in him do not just have God's gracious hand upon their life. We are in the hand of God, carried like beloved children. And we can trust that our Father will never let us down. Amen. Amen. Someone, someone else will be saying, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Life doesn't always work this way. I know many people that were let down by God. In fact, I heard a sermon like this one time and two Christ for God and it didn't work out. And we don't like to talk about it, but life doesn't always turn out great like Ezra chapter 8. Sometimes we pray and we do not get answers. Sometimes our true no fault of ours, our heart is dashed and we are left to pick up the pieces. Sometimes our lot in life is that we will explain tire. No evidence. <laughs> One of my favorite author was a Romanian pastor called Richard Wombrand. You may know him. And he was in prison for a total of 14 years for his faith. During that time, he was tortured horribly. In fact, three of these years were spent in solitary confinement. And so this is someone that has experienced a lot of bad things despite trusting in God. And I think he has earned the right to say something to us about this issue. Here's what he had to say. Jesus once asked one of his disciples, why did you doubt Peter had walked on the water and had been in danger of drowning. The disciple never answered the Savior's question, neither did the latter insist. If he had, Peter could have answered, I doubted that I will be saved from this deadly danger because you are incalculable. So many of those who believe in God drown. Sometimes they escape in a miraculous manner. But you never know how it will be in your case. And he said, Peter would have still been wrong to doubt. This because once you belong to Jesus, life and death are the same to you. He is eternal and so are you. This is why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 4 that even though we are afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, we are not crushed, we are not in despair, we are not forsaken, we are not destroyed. In verse 16 it says that we do not lose hearts. For our light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Trust in the goodness of the catcher. And I just want to pray for somebody here who is going through a rough time. Maybe you're in the state of poor, but you are crushed, you are afflicted, you are persecuted, you feel struck down. God's peace will flood your heart today. God will give you joy in the midst of your chaos. 
God will give you a peace that passes understanding and a hope that nothing in this life, no circumstances can shake in the name of Jesus. Amen. Trust the catcher. People who live under the hand of God are full of faith. But the second thing we see is that they are people of prayer. Verse 21 says, There by the Hava Canal I proclaim the fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions. And this is such a good test. That if you truly believe your life proceeds from God, then you become a person of prayer. And of course, you say, yes, of course, Ezra had to pray now. Do you see what was going on in his life? He was traveling with a lot of treasure. There were women and children in the, in the entourage. The road was full of unknown gunmen. Ezra was in a dire situation. Of course, yes, I agree. But the question then is this. Is there any time when we are not in a dire situation? Short story. In, 2000, in 2021, In 2021, I was diagnosed with something called Graves' disease. Don't Google. It's a thyroid issue. Let's focus. <laughs> Let's focus. So how did I find out that I was sick? I'd injured myself. I was exercising. I injured myself, and I had to go to the hospital. And they were taking my vitals, and it turned out my blood pressure was really high. So they began to investigate, and they found out that my thyroid levels were off. In fact, one of the markers was 380 times off from the normal range. In fact, that day that I, was, I got the results, they admitted me immediately. But it didn't end there. They said we need to do an FNAC, which is like a biopsy, because it's possible that you have cancer. Now, it turned out I didn't, have, I, don't, I didn't have cancer, praise God. And I'm trusting God to turn the graves into gardens. <laughs> I really want to say that. But here is my point. Before that day, I was walking around and going about my normal business, even though my life was in serious danger. It's the same thing with us in life, that you're not aware of the danger does not mean that there is no danger. What makes you feel that because you got up, left your house, and came back, that that's how it happens for everybody, that's how it's supposed to be? Are you a joker? We make plans with so much arrogance, forgetting that we have no idea whatsoever that what tomorrow will bring. People who know that it is God that keeps them, and like David said, I lay me down and slept and I woke up because it was God that sustained me. They are people of prayer. Like a pastor said, they go to God first and most. And it's not just about praying for protection or praying for deliverance. When there's a decision to be made, are you quicker to pull up Excel sheets and compare pros and cons than you are to pray about it? And I'm just going to say it. This issue is not about whether you should live or stay, but many of us have initiated Jabba plans without hearing from God. Are you praying about this thing? Are you trusting in the Lord with all your heart? Or are you leaning on your own understanding? A person who lives under the hand of God is quick to pray. It becomes your default response. You go to God first and most. But the Jews in Ezra chapter 8 do not only pray, they also fast. Why fasting? In April, Pastor Femi preached a sermon on fasting. His sermon is titled, Hungering for God. And please go and listen to it. It's very important. And I'm not going to go into details, but here is something else I'm going to add. One way we can view the issue of being under the hand, <laughs> under a hand, is to view it in terms of control. 
and we can grossly, grossly, grossly underestimate how much we are under the control of food. Meal times are the rhythms that drive our lives. And yes, part of the reason is because we need food to survive. But is it really normal that if there's a program in church and they don't promise you food, you're not sure whether you attend? Is it normal that it's almost a taboo to talk about gluttony from the pulpit? We can talk about fornication, talk about laziness, but to say, ah, guys, people are eating too much. Everybody's afraid to talk about it. Is it normal that food is our great consolation and we use the thought of lunch or dinner to get us through the workday? Ah, it's almost time for food. Let me just manage. It's almost time for food. You know what it sounds like? It sounds like even though we are Christians, the hand of food is a far greater reality in our lives than God is. I know what the Bible calls that idolatry. Fasting is a way to push back against this and say, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Fasting is a way to disconnect us from the hands that we are under and bring us under the hand of God. Fasting is saying, I am going to disrupt the rhythm of food in my life so I can more fully experience the rhythms of grace. Do you want to live under the hand of God? Become a person whose life is characterized by fasting and prayer. Go to God first and most. And guess what? God answers prayers. Verse 23 says, so we fasted and petitioned our God about this, and he answered our prayer. We are not wasting time calling on God. He tells us to call on him in the day of trouble, and he will deliver us. God answers prayers. And I pray for somebody here that to be your testimony, that you sought the Lord, and he answered you and delivered you from all your fears. It doesn't end here. Because there's a way we can talk about prayer. As it ends with us looking at the hand of God like a divine vending machine, as a means to an end. And that leads me to my final point, beyond the hand of God. Don't get me wrong. We can and should pray and ask God for stuff. And God delights to answer our requests. But prayer is about so much more than that. Prayer is an invitation to meet with God. To get to know him. To learn to delight in him. Jesus teaches us what prayer should look like. And yes, it includes asking for our daily bread and asking for deliverance from evil. But how does our Lord prayer start? Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be your name. Prayer is first and foremost about relationship. That you have a father who loves you and wants you to know him. Prayer is about desiring God. Your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You want to see him more and more in your life and in the world. Should we ask God for things? Yes, of course. We answer those prayers. Yes, he will. But we spend time with him we begin to realize that the ultimate reason that God gives us good things is so that we can come to know the God who is good. That's what we see in the passage. In verse 35, we finally see where all the leading, all the protection, all the answer prayers, all the favor is heading to. It says the exiles who had returned from captivity sacrificed burnt offerings to the God of Israel and the sin offering. All of this was a burnt offering to the Lord. Oh. The point of everything was to bring them to a restored relationship with God. 
It's what Paul means in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, when he says, God's goodness should lead you to repentance. It's this idea that God wants to give us good gifts, but he also wants to give us the best gift that he could ever give us, and that is the gift of himself. Because that's the end for which we are made for. That's why we are most alive, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Brothers and sisters, God is saying to us, it's about the relationship. Yes, God's hand is full of blessings, but he wants you to look beyond his hand and see his face. To see that it's not so much about gifts as it is about the giver. That it's not so much about presence, that it is about his presence. That before God is provider, he is father. Before there is commissioning, there is communion. Prayer is a call to participate in the greatest privilege that anybody could ever have. A relationship with the God of the universe. Oh, I don't know. I don't know where to start from. It doesn't matter. Just show up. I don't even desire to pray. One of the most empowering truths I've learned is that you can actually pray, God, grant me the grace to desire this. I don't have the words. I have good news for you. There are lots of prayers in the Bible that you can pray. In fact, the Bible has an entire book of prayers. It's called the Psalms. You can start from there. Read the Psalms and the prayers of Paul and pray them over and over and over again. And as you continue to do that, we see that something begins to happen in us. Our desires begin to change. We begin to find out the words that we are reading and speaking to God are becoming a reality, that his love is becoming better than life, that in his presence is truly fullness of joy, and at his right hand there are pleasures forevermore, and our souls are beginning to long for him in a dry and barren land where there is no water, that he is becoming the strength of our life and our portion forever, that the one thing we seek after and we desire is to behold the beauty of God and to inquire in his temple, that more than anything that God can do for us, what we really want is more of him. Brothers and sisters, the good hand of our God has always been on us. That's never been in doubt. But the question is this. Are you going to look beyond his hand and see his face? Thanks for listening. If you found this sermon helpful, we hope you join us in the mission of renewing Lagos with the gospel by sharing it rating this podcast and following us. These actions help us reach more people with the gospel. You can also connect with us on various social media platforms via the handle at City